the start of the lecture. Then at the end of the class, I will submit them right now to the person who can actually upload them for me. Apple's having some sort of issue with their uploader, so I can't upload the stuff. Which, if you've subscribed to my podcast, you may have noticed a problem that nothing was updated for a while. And I've just had the last three Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays uploaded this morning, so you'll be able to access the Photo of the Day podcast now for the last three days if you've subscribed. Otherwise, you had just ones from earlier in August and back into July. So those have now been updated, and those will be updated daily. And hopefully these lectures will be able to get up there if these aren't too, too big for me to be able to email to the gentleman who can actually upload them for me until Apple gets their stuff straightened out. Um, as I mentioned last time, I think I got everybody signed in. At least the numbers counted up right, so that was good. So I will have the ascendance sheet there each day. You should already see if you go into D2L, you should already see if you were here yesterday. If you're yesterday, nobody was here yesterday, right? Not in this class, at least. Um, if you were here on Monday, you should already see three points for your grade. So you try to have a three out of three if you were here on Monday already for the first uh, attendance, and then I'll add, update the other ones today. So uh, assignments coming up. And I told you some of these last time, but I've actually will keep this up on the board. I'll put this up on the board uh, daily so that you know what's coming up. They're tentative dates. They may change. Uh, they may be, end up being a little bit later if things run behind. Um, typically, I don't unless there's something really unforeseen. I won't make anything earlier than what I schedule here. But so if something runs behind, if I'm not quite getting caught up where we're going to cover everything for quiz one, then I might delay quiz one a little bit, for example. But the extra credit assignment that I gave out last time is due on Monday. So that's the subscription to the podcast and sending me the email about that. And I know a few of you have already gotten that done. If you've done that, I grade those as they come in. So you should be seeing your grade updated already. So there's people that already have you know, 18, out of, 18 points out of three already. So. Really doing great. What a great start to the semester. Isn't that great? You know, I've got a 3,000% 3, in the class or whatever it is. Homework 1, which I gave out last time, is due August 30th. That covers the first two chapters, 0 and 1. And there'll be a quiz on those two chapters. Uh, the quizzes are done on D2L online. So you have, means you have access to your books and notes when you take them. They are timed still. Um, and I leave them up. Usually I'll put them up for about three or four days. Because I've scheduled this one for the holiday weekend, I've extended it through the 5th of September, which means I get to give you a reminder on Wednesday instead of you trying to take it over the holiday weekend and forgetting about it. When you come in, I'll give you a reminder on Wednesday, and you'll have that day to still take it too. So if you forgot about it, it'll still be available for those for that extra day. So those are the things coming up next week. And then beyond that, we're looking at the first set of solar observations. So any solar observations you can get, I will take on Wednesday the 4th. And I'll look at those and give them back to you on the 6th, next day we meet. So I'll give them right back to you and let you know what, how, how things are progressing there. And then, I know we just started, but since I split up to four exams, we have an exam scheduled for the first three chapters. Right now it's scheduled for the 4th. Uh, it'll either be the 4th, if we run late, it will be the following Monday. I'm not going to give you an exam on Fridays because it seems silly to give you an exam and then have you come back and sit for lab or have to leave. You know, if you finish the exam early, then you're stuck for half an hour. So the exam will be on either, either this Wednesday or it'll be the following Monday, which would be the 9th. So again, I'll have that updated daily for you, just so you know what's, just so you know what's coming and what's coming up. So, questions? No, no. Alrighty. 
All right, and as I said, we'll start off. You get a picture, a picture of the day for each day. Uh, this one is the Perseid meteors, uh, image taken in China. And the Perseid meteors, meteor shower, uh, this occurs in August, the Perseid meteors. Uh, so it was actually a couple, about a week ago, when you had a really nice meteor shower early in the morning. Now, if you go out there expecting to see this, you're not going to see it. If anyone's ever seen a meteor shower, you get one meteor and you might wait a minute or two minutes or five minutes and see another one. This is actually a combination of a whole bunch of images taken over about a four hour period. So put the camera out, take a short exposure of it, 10, 15, 20 seconds even, and do that over and over again over that time period and then put everything together and you get to see you know, all those meteors that you would have seen over four hours. But you're not going to look up there in a meteor shower and see a shower as you tend to think of a shower. It's not going to look like that. You're going to see one flash of light and then another flash of light maybe a minute later, maybe two minutes later, maybe five minutes later, depending on how many particles are out there. Now the meteor shower is caused when the Earth travels through the debris left behind by a comet. So comets travel through the solar system. They're very uh, fluffy, snowy, uh, snowy, icy objects. And they're not very well held together. So they come apart very easily. And when they get close to the sun, a lot of the particles just get melted off them and they get left behind the comet in its orbit. And at some point, in this case for the Perseids during August, we pass through, the or the, through that orbit of that comet. The comet's not there anymore. Maybe way out someplace else in the solar system. Some cases the comet may be long gone. And we collect those little bits of particles and what we're seeing with the flashes here are those little tiny dust particles burning up in the atmosphere. So these aren't really related to meteorites that you see, you know, a chunk of rock that you see. That's not what these are. These are little teeny tiny specks of dust that are burning up in the upper Earth's atmosphere. And the intense heat of them hitting the atmosphere at a very high speed just burns them up and they're gone. So these never make it down to the Earth. They're never going to crash into you or anything. There are certainly larger ones that do occur, but the meteor showers that occur are really always uh, the little tiny, little tiny dust particles. Now, the other thing that you may notice in the image is that it all seems to be coming from one point. It all seems to focus back to this one area. And if you notice, like all, if you trace all these backwards, they seem to be coming from one part out here. And that's the constellation of Perseus. That's how the shower gets its name, is because of what constellation they seem to come from. That's really an optical illusion. What it is, is that if you've ever looked out in the distance, right, you look at telephone poles going out in the distance, they seem to converge together. Look at the road, you know, anything, long chains that are parallel, they seem to converge off in the distance. What it really means is just that all these meteors were coming in from that same comet debris. So they're coming in from the same area of the sky and they look off in the distance, they seem to be coming from a single point. So it's really an optical illusion, as I say, looking off at telephone, tel telephone poles off in the distance and watching, and watching them seem to converge together. It's the same kind of thing that is happening here. So that's our second picture of the day. There was a nice one yesterday on the sun, if anyone got a chance to take a look at that too. And we'll have a new one. No, no clue what it will be yet on Friday. But if there are questions, I'll be happy to take questions. Yes, sir? Is this there is a comet coming later this year that is going to be a very uh, nice, 
supposed to be a very nice comet if it survives its trip. It's going to be coming very close to the sun. And if it survives the trip around the sun, it's going to be really nice in November, December. So we'll keep you updated on that as we go. I'm sure, actually, I'm sure our photo of the day will keep us, keep us updated on that as it will show. If that comes there, it'll be nice. It's actually going to be nicely visible from the northern hemisphere. The last couple we've had haven't been really well visible in the northern hemisphere. Got some nice pictures from people in New Zealand and Australia and everybody south of the equator, but up here haven't been so lucky with comets. But there is a nice one that is coming and hopefully before the end of the semester, we'll get some nice views of that, and hopefully you'll think go out and take a look at it yourself. I mean, it'll be a nice, nice bright naked eye comet. You won't need any equipment, no binoculars, nothing else. You'll be able to see it really well. So yeah. I'm sure it's going to be at least that close. So yeah, we're 93 million miles. It's going to be it's going to be in with a fraction of that, tiny fraction. That's going to be real. Could be well inside Mercury's orbit. It's going to be. It's what they call almost a sun grazing comet, which isn't grazing as in touching it, but which would certainly destroy it, but getting very, very close to the sun. So it'll be well inside the orbit of Mercury even. So, yes, sir? Um, it will, it could, or it might not. It depends on how dense the comet is, how tightly packed the material is to be able to survive it. A lot of the material would be vaporized which is what happens to a comet. That's what we really see of the comet is all the material that's been vaporized out of it. But if it's strong enough to survive that, sometimes the sun will just tear it apart just because of its gravity. It might rip it apart into many pieces and then it's gone. So it may come around the sun in a bunch of, bunch of pieces and not be much left there. But it can. It just depends on how much material is actually there and how tightly bound, how tightly packed together it actually is. Anything else? Alrighty. Well, we will go on to our first chapter then. And what I'm going to go back here first, I'm actually going to pull up the course on D2L because I wanted to do one other thing I should have mentioned on Monday. And didn't I kind of ran, wanted to make sure I got over the whole syllabus and didn't have to drag that over to today. If you go on to D2L and onto our class site, you should see something similar to this. And under the content link, I have content for each chapter. And you have your table of contents on the side. We're on lesson one right now. And if you go in there, you have the course syllabus, the extra credit assignment, the homework, the art, all this information that I gave you yesterday. So if you lose anything, you can get it there again. You also have some information that will be there for each, chap each lesson. And one of the things is the PowerPoint slides that I use for lecture. If you want to go in and get them and print them out and have those instead of trying to scribble down notes or to scribble extra notes on those, you're welcome to print those out you know, before lecture. So you'll be able to get chapter zero and you'll be able to actually access lesson two right now as well which will have chapter one lecture. So there are those are available for you. There is also a video lecture which is me lecturing over the PowerPoint slide. So it's a screen capture recording. So I'm recording my voice over the screen and doing the lecture again. I use those for my online classes. I put them here because you may as well have access to them too. If you miss something, you want to go hear a lecture again or something that I said, here you can hear just the audio. Here you can see it and see the slides at the same time. So those are available for you. You're not required to use it, but if you want to go back and review it or if you miss a chapter or you want to review a chapter, that's a useful thing. The other thing that's in there, and you'll see these for each, are a set of review questions. It's not an assignment. 
but you can use those and if you go into those it's just a set of questions for chapter zero that I write it as a set of questions and you can go through and if you go through and answer them you know, print that out and answer them. It makes a real good reference for studying for quizzes and exams. And what I started last semester is actually permitting you to use those for the exams. The one thing you could bring in. So you could print those out, write whatever you wanted to on them, write the answers to those, and bring them in and use those as a reference. No other books or notes, but you can use those as a reference. So if you want to use those, I've had people who want to take notes on the PowerPoints or take notes on these and bring those in instead. So said I should have let you know on Monday so you had them ready for today. But you do have those and those are up there and ready for each lesson. So you can print out chapters uh, 0 and 1 right now anytime. So you would be able to use those for the exam. So chapter 0, 1, and 2 you can bring in those three sets. Any notes you want to write on them and you can use that as a reference for the, for the exam to help you. So yes sir? Where is the Dropbox now? The Dropbox is under assessments. And under assessments there is Dropbox and grades and the quizzes are available under there too. So if you click on Dropbox, there is a Dropbox for homework submissions for you to put in, Dropbox for article reviews, a Dropbox for solar observations, and then a Dropbox for the extra credit assignment. So you can now access there. Yeah, if you used it before, it's changed a little bit, so you gotta take a little time to try to get used to the new new navigation. Okay. Yeah, it's hiding under it's hiding under assessments. So so I just wanted to make sure you knew all those were there, that those resources were there, because I didn't want to tell you about the day before the exam or the and then all of a sudden, you know, wish I'd known all this before. So all right. So those are there and available for you. Any questions before I we'll go ahead and get started then. If there's no other questions. All right. We'll start from here. Chapter zero. Charting the heavens. Now chapter zero goes through a lot of material, talks about how, how the sky appears to move. And we know now that the sky really isn't moving. I mean, but it sure looks like it is if you ever go out there at night and watch it and look at where, where the moon is. Nice full moon, uh, either last night or this morning. I don't remember when the exact timing of it was. But it was nice and full this morning and looked pretty good last night. But if you sit there and watch it, you know, it appears to, it moves pretty quickly. And that's all due to the Earth's, really the Earth's rotation, but that's not something that was known, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago. It really looked like everything was, everything was moving around the Earth. In the case of the moon, they were correct. Your moon is, is moving around the Earth. But sure, the sun sure looks like it is too. Right? If you just go out there, it sure doesn't feel like we're moving. So the first chapter kind of goes through and talks about some of these different motions and the different measures of a day, the different measures of a month, and even the different measures of a year in terms of those. And then we'll also talk about, let me go to the next, the Earth's motion, the motions of the moon. So why do we see the different phases? Got a nice full phase right now. But if you keep watching it over the coming days, you'll see it later and later at night. So full moon is visible pretty much all night long. But as we go through the next week, it'll only be visible, won't be visible till late, late in the night or early in the very early in the morning time to be able to see it and to, as the phases change. So we'll look a little bit about that. And then interesting thing about the moon is eclipses when the moon happens to block out the sun. We have any solar eclipse viewers here? Anyone had the? Sun 
couple? Total? Total or just a, par a partial one? No, I was there the whole one. You were afraid total? Okay. I haven't seen a total myself. We've got two coming up in the next 12 years, actually, in this. Not in, not in Harrisburg, unfortunately. You've got to move a little bit around. But there are actually two coming up. That's when it's the middle of the day and turns totally It'll turn totally dark, yes. So, good. I think one of the few classes I've actually had someone who's, who's seen one. So I've seen a number of partial eclipses. They're a little more, little more common. But to actually see the total one when it becomes completely dark in the middle of the day. So we'll talk about those. And lunar eclipses, which usually a few more people have had the chance to see. They're a little bit easier to see when the moon will actually disappear. Yeah. Yeah. Total lunar eclipse is a little easier to see. Bad thing with the solar eclipse is you've got to be in exactly the right spot. So if there were a total solar eclipse in Harrisburg, and you were, you know, in York, you wouldn't see a total solar eclipse. You might get almost total, but not quite. So I mean, it's that close. You've got to be within, you know, a 15, 20 mile stretch of where that eclipse is. You've got to be in exactly the right well, location. The if it got totally dark, if it got totally dark, then you were. If it got pit, if it got nighttime, then you were you were in the path. Now that path is like 10, 15 miles wide, depending on the thing. So it's got some width to it, but it's not like you can. Oh, we're going to see it if we're in Pennsylvania. No, you got to be in the right spot of Pennsylvania or the right spot of you know wherever it's going through. And then we'll start looking at measurements of distance. Uh, one of the big things in this class is really determining distances. And we'll get a start at it here. We won't finish it till one of the last chapters of the class in terms of measuring distances. Distances are something very important in astronomy, but they're also something hard to measure. You know, how do you measure how far away the moon is? You can't take a tape measure out there and you know, get a big tape measure out to the moon. How far away is it? How about the sun? That's even further. How do we get those kinds of distances? And that's just our solar system. How about the distance to a star? Distance to galaxies. Distance to large clusters of galaxies. It's very hard to get those measurements. So we'll start about it here looking at some of the closest methods. But as we go through the class, you'll see that we'll expand our distance scale as we try to measure things further and further out. And we'll find out that you know, distances in astronomy are not known perfectly well. So if you say that a star might be 800 light years away, it takes light 800 years to get there as the distance. It might be 850, it might be 700, there might be a 50 light year difference. That's a pretty big error. But that's about as accurate as we can get some of these numbers just because it's so hard to measure these incredibly large distances that are <clears throat> sorry, well beyond anything that we're used to. And then finally we'll finish up a little bit with science and the scientific method and actually we'll do an activity on Friday with our lab that will actually work on that, work on that as well. So let's start looking at first at what we see. First of all, Earth is average. We daily, we're not, we're not, don't play special in the universe. So that's not the way it was always thought uh, for the longest time. In fact, up until the, even well into the 16, well into the 1600s, 1700s, we thought we did occupy a special place in the universe. And even beyond that, you know, is the Earth the center of the universe? That's certainly what we thought for a very long time. There's only a, a handful of astronomers before the 1500s or so that really thought that the Earth was not at the center of the universe. And it's not, it's not really a bad thing. I mean, we sit back and look, well, how stupid were they? You know, the Earth isn't the center of anything. But if you go out there and look, it doesn't look like 
it looks like everything's moving around us. If you go out there and watch, the stars rise and they set. They're moving around the Earth. The moon moves around the Earth. The sun moves around the Earth. All the planets seem to be moving around the Earth. So we now know that we don't occupy any special place, but it's not something, in this case, it's one of the things that really isn't so obvious. Because if you just go out there and try to measure it, are we moving? If you do the calculations and try to figure out how fast that we're moving in terms of us spinning once a day, in terms of us moving around the sun once a year, in terms of our sun moving around the center of our galaxy every couple hundred million years, we're moving at an incredible rate right now. You know, we're zipping by. But because everything, you, me, the buildings, the atmosphere, everything's moving the same, you don't notice it. So it doesn't really feel like we're moving. But it's not something that is quite so obvious in this case. A uh, couple definitions just first of all, what is the universe? The universe is really everything. That's what we're going to be studying in this class. So everything, all of space, all of time, all the matter, all the material that we see, and all the energy that we see. So everything that we see, all the different forms of light, all the different stars, galaxies, planets. And astronomy is really just studying that universe. It's studying everything that exists. So astronomy in many ways can be considered the most general of the sciences because you need a little bit of everything in order to understand it. And as we go through, we'll talk about, as we go through the class, we'll do, there'll be some physics we'll talk about. You know, physical motion, talking about the motions, how the planets move. We have to know a little bit about uh, physics to understand that. Uh, there's some chemistry. There's some biology, especially the last chapter when we talk about life in the universe. We've got to talk a little bit about biology. So astronomy really talks about all sorts of different, all different sciences. Geology, when you talk about the planets as well. So all the different sciences are really covered there. Now the distances are what are incredibly large. You know, beyond anything, you know, it's a long way here, it's 100 miles, that's a long way, right? 100 miles, 500 miles, 1,000 miles, that's a long way. That's nothing astronomically speaking. So even talking about traveling around the Earth is nothing when we're talking about the incredible distances when we get out to talking about the solar, let's just start with the solar system. You know, to get to the sun, 93 million miles. Can, can you imagine 93 million miles, right? I can't. Trying like time to imagine ninety-three million dollars, right? You know, ninety-three dollars, yeah, maybe nine dollars. Yeah, I can, I can get that one. You know, but nine, but ninety-three million—that's just a very big number. Trying to understand that. So what we do is we use other sets of units instead of giving you these very large numbers, like ninety-three million miles. That's the Earth-Sun distance. How far away are we from the sun on the average? About 93 million miles. And we call that, that's called one astronomical unit. Makes it a lot easier. Saturn is about 10 times as far away from the sun as the Earth. So if I want to start talking about distances from the sun to Saturn, well, I could say 930 million miles. Again, the numbers just go, they go way over my head. So I'm assuming probably with you guys to 930 million. Or I can say it's 10 astronomical units away. At least 10 is a number we can comprehend. So we try to bring the numbers down to something that's a little more, little more manageable. 
So astronomical units work really well for talking about things within the solar system. So Earth is one astronomical unit from the sun. Saturn is about 10. Jupiter is about 5. Uh, Mars is what, about 1.5. So numbers that we can at least understand instead of giving you these gigantic numbers in terms of miles or kilometers or whatever else we want to measure. But if we want to look at the distances for the stars, this doesn't even work. The nearest star, the nearest star, uh, Alpha Centauri, would be in astronomical units about about 300,000 roughly astronomical units away from us. I'm not, I'm not testing you on these numbers by the way, so don't sit there and if I could memorize how many astronomical units away it is. Um, but that's not too bad. 300,000 It's getting within the realm of things we can pretty much get a, sometimes start to get a handle on, but still getting pretty large. That's the nearest star. There are stars that are 10 times, 100 times, thousands of times further away than this. And in fact, stars within our galaxy could be 10,000 or even 100,000 times further away. So we're starting to get, some, again, some very big numbers. So we use another, another unit, which we call the light year. This is also equal to about 4.3 or so light years. Now a light year, regardless of what it says in its units, right, it says years, is not a measure of time, it's a measure of distance. It's just how far light travels in one year. So if you, could tra if, you wanted, if you could travel at the speed of light and you wanted to go visit Alpha Centauri, it would take 4.3 years to get there. So even traveling as fast as light goes, it's going to take you an incredibly long time to get to even the nearest star. You do even better, travel 10 times the speed of light, it's still going to take you almost half a year to get there. 10 times the speed of light. So that's to give you some kind of concept of how far away everything is in the universe and we're still talking about the closest star to our sun. If you start talking about other ones, there are our galaxy is maybe a hundred thousand light years across and we start talking about other galaxies, we're talking about things that are millions of light years away. The Andromeda galaxy, about a million, about two million, two, two and a half million light years away. So. What does it look like? What does that look like right now? We have no clue. Yes, sir? Isn't it coming right towards? It is coming towards us, yes. There is a collision planned in, oh, what is it, a couple billion years? So don't hold your breath. It won't cancel the final or anything, you know, but, um, the, but yes, there is alpha, the, not Alpha Centauri, but the Andromeda Galaxy is on a, a collision course with us, or we're on a collision course with it. There's really no way to tell the difference. But we're coming together, yes. So we will likely be a nice colliding galaxy, in a, which we'll talk about later in the, in the, in the course uh, later on. But yeah, they will collide. They will, it, is, it is coming close to colliding to us with us. So the distances, again, are incredible. And that's one of the reasons that we don't have to worry about that for billions of years, because it's got to travel two, two million light years. Yes, sir? Alpha Centauri is actually a three-star system. I usually list it as Alpha Centauri as being the closest star. Technically, it's not. Technically, there's another star. Uh, it's actually the other. It's actually Proxima. There's Alpha and Beta, are two stars very close orbiting around each other. 
And then there's another star that orbits around both of them, a very small star. If Earth is down here, way, way down below to the scale, this star is on this side right now, so it happens to be the closest. 100,000 years from now, guess what? It won't, it'll be further away. But at the moment, this, star, this third star is actually the closest of them. Uh, Proxima Centauri. Oh. Uh, just triple star system, not a special. Binary is two, but usually it's just triple or quadruple once you have, once you have more. But yeah, the near one, just since I started it, Proxima, proximate closest. It's like 4.2 or something. It's very, very close. It's not really close to us. It's not going to be much closer. And part of the time it's actually further away than the other two as it orbits around them. It's a much smaller star than these two and it orbits them much as the way a planet would orbit around our sun. All right, so a little bit there about distances. Now when we look out at the sky, we see constellations, right? You all see all those great constellations that jump out at you. You see the great bear and the lion and all of that, right? No, you see a bunch of stars just sitting out there, right? Um, the constellations are actually groupings that have been made you know, through history. So sometimes it reminded somebody of something or it was named in honor of something. But what we want to point out here is that they're really the constellations are not group, are groupings of stars that are very specific to the Earth. So if you were not on the Earth, you would not see the same set of constellations. Now what do I mean by that? That doesn't mean if you go to Mars you're going to see a different set of constellations or even out towards Saturn. But if you traveled elsewhere in the galaxy, you wouldn't see exactly the same groupings. You'd see the same stars. Stars are going to be the same. But the groupings are going to be different because when we see a constellation, there's Orion. Right? That's one people usually can recognize. You see that in the winter sky. You've got four bright stars outlining the body of the hunter and the three stars of the belt. So one that people usually can uh, recognize, nicely visible December, January time. But they look like they're all at the same distance on the sky, right? We touch everything on the sky, it's all at the same distance. Looks like it is. But in reality, if you measure the distances to those stars, well, this one here in the belt, that middle star in the belt is way out here whereas the other two stars are much closer. So you can imagine that if you make this distance, if you were someplace else, there are parts where you could be where part of Orion would be on one side of you, part of Orion would be on another side. You'd have to travel hundreds of light years from the Earth, but if you were out someplace else, if there was a civilization on one of these, around one of these stars, they would not see that same constellation. They'd see completely different groupings. But the whole idea is that just because we see those stars grouped together, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily close together in space. Some of them may be. You know, these two are about the same distance. Uh, some, of the, some of the clusters that we see are, at the same, are together, but not all of them. Not everything that we see is really at the same distance. What we see them at is on what we call the celestial sphere. This is how they appear to be. And if you, look, if you go, go out and look out at night, it looks like all the stars are attached to this great sphere that circles around the Earth once every day. So that's what we appear to see. And that's what was actually thought for a very long time. So they're on the inside of the sphere great, uh, that circles around the Earth. But 
That's not what happens. That's not the way they are. They're not really on this great sphere. They're actually at all different distances. So some of these stars are much closer, some are much further away. But when we look out at the sky, we don't get that three-dimensional view. We lose that three-dimensional aspect to the universe when we look out at the sky. It doesn't look like, if you look at the moon traveling through the stars, it doesn't look like it's so much closer and that it's incredibly closer compared to those stars that it passes by. So you lose that three-dimensional. Everything gets squished down to this great celestial sphere. But that's useful for us in terms of determining positions. So on Earth, if we want to determine where something is, we can give two coordinates. We can give a latitude, how far it is above or below the, the, the Earth's equator. And we can give a longitude, how far it is around the Earth, east and west. And if you give a specific latitude and a specific longitude, you can tell exactly where anything on the Earth is. So you can identify anything on the surface of the Earth. Well, we do the same thing in the sky. We can use a set of coordinates to determine latitude and longitude essentially on the sky. So like we have an equator on the Earth, if you imagine that, take the Earth's equator, just imagine it projected out to the, to the sky, it'll intersect that great celestial sphere and becomes the celestial equator. So just like the Earth's equator divides the Earth into a northern hemisphere and a southern hemisphere, the celestial equator will divide the celestial sphere into a northern hemisphere and a southern hemisphere. So just like it does on the Earth. So we can, and we can use the same set of coordinates. We can figure out how far, how far are we above the celestial equator, how far are we below it. And that gives us one of the coordinates to be able to determine a position. And there's another one we'll look at in a minute to determine how far we are around. You know, how do we turn around? Where are we turning around? What is our location along the celestial equator? So are we here or are we further east or further west of that? So it gives us a way to determine positions and to precisely say where a star is. You can give an exact uh, set of coordinates and tell where it is. So just as you want to get someplace on Earth, program an exact location into the GPS, right, and get there. You can do the same thing with the telescope, can be programmed with an exact set of coordinates and can turn right to that star. So instead of saying it happens to be in the constellation of Pisces, a rather large constellation, stretches here and comes around, you know, where is it exactly in there? You give a set of coordinates and it precisely will locate your object within that constellation. Now before I come to those set of coordinates, I want to talk a minute about angles. Because what we measure in terms of the, in, in astronomy, in terms of a lot of distances and sizes and everything, is all angular measure. Now, first one you're probably familiar with, right? Everybody knows a circle is 360 degrees, right? We've done that, done that before. So a full circle all the way around the sky is 360 degrees. So one degree is a pretty big measure for astronomy. Way too big for most things that we want to measure. In fact, the moon, the full moon, we got a nice full moon right now. Still be pretty close to full if you look at it, go look at it tonight. Is about half of a degree. So that's pretty small as it is. Even the moon is, you know, we need, we need much smaller measures in order to measure things like stars and distances between very closely separated stars. So what is done is that we divide those degrees into 60 parts. So each degree gets divided into 60 parts. And those are called minutes, or in this case, arc minutes. 
So instead of a, not a minute of time, right? We use the same same unit, same nomenclature for time. It's a minute of arc, meaning an angular measure. So the moon can be half of a degree. The moon can also be 30 minutes of arc. It's a way to measure those angles and to give those sizes. Now when we look at this, when we're trying to measure some of the very small distances, minutes of arc are real nice for measuring maybe the sizes of the planets, which might be a couple arc minutes. Very, very tiny. But we still need to go even smaller. So we divide those minutes, again, at least the nomenclature makes sense because we're all familiar with hours, minutes, and seconds. In astronomy, for degrees, it's degrees, minutes, and seconds. So we divide each of those arc minutes into 60 arc seconds. Arc seconds are a much better, better unit of measure for a lot of the things that we look at in astronomy. If you're looking at two closely separated stars in the telescope, they're probably going to be you know, arc seconds or fractions of an arc second apart. Some of the tiny motions that we try to measure to determine distances are less than one arc second apart. So these incredibly small angles, I mean, take a degree, the moon, or the moon is about half a degree, that's about 30 arc minutes, that's about 1800 arc seconds, and we've had to measure tiny fractions of that, so, you know, less than one two thousandth the diameter of the full moon. That's pretty, pretty tough to measure. And those are the angles that we're actually measuring. And in fact, we can measure even smaller, th smaller than that now with modern accuracy, with modern equipment. So we're taking that degree just to give you an idea of how it magnifies. There's the degree, 1 360th of that full circle. Split that into 60 pieces. There's one of those 60 pieces. There's one. And there's one of those arc seconds. That's what we're trying to measure. Those are the angles that we're trying to measure in terms of determining size, determining some of the separations between some of the very close stars that we can, that we can measure. So you will see these, these numbers used, arc minutes, arc seconds, you'll see some of those, some of those used on occasion. We see things, we get a measure, when you measure how big something is in the sky or how far apart two stars are, we don't measure them in, you know, inches or meters or kilometers or anything. So if we want to see how big the moon is, we're looking at an apparent size, and that's the angular size. How much of an angle does it cover on the sky? That's what we look for anything that's a separation on the sky, because we can't go measure it out, measure it. And I can't hold a ruler up to the sky and say, well, they're three inches apart, right? But what if I hold the ruler here? What if I got really long arms and it's further away? It's going to change the distance. The angular distance never changes. The angular distance only depends on how big something really is. The bigger it is, the bigger it's going to appear and how far away it is. So we look at the sun and the moon, they're the same angular size, almost exactly. Sun and the moon are both about half of a degree in size. But they're big differences away. The moon is a couple hundred thousand kilometers away. Uh, the sun is about 150,000 kilometers away. Keep them in the same unit. So it's much, much further away. but happens to look the same size because it's so much bigger. So much bigger, so much further away, the angular size will actually stay the same. Now those coordinates, here's what they're called. Did the before part without giving you the names, but we use declination and right ascension are the two terms. So declination is just like latitude on the Earth. Get everybody signed in. All right. So declination 
is comparable to latitude. And right ascension is comparable to longitude on the Earth. So declination on the, of, the, of, the, of a star on the, on the celestial sphere tells you how far it is above or below the celestial equator. So a star up here might be, you know, so far above, where's the celestial equator? How many degrees up above is it? Well, there it is. It's about seven degrees or so in this case. Its right ascension is how far it is along around the celestial, around the celestial equator. Now, in order to do that, you've got to pick out a point to start because you've got to have a reference point. Celestial equator is an obvious one that works for, works for everybody. It's there, just like the Earth's equator. It's the same no matter where you are. But when you want to measure how far you are around, it doesn't really matter what position you pick as long as everybody agrees on the same one. So for longitude on the Earth, uh, International Convention has said that it's the, it's the meridian of longitude that goes through Greenwich, England. So this meridian, this line, is what we define to be zero for longitude. Could have just as easily picked the one that goes through Washington, D.C., or the one that goes through Paris, France, or the ones that goes through Tokyo. You know, could have picked any of them. As long as everybody agrees on it, it's fine. When it was agreed to, of course, Britain was one of the great powers, so of course they, got, they ended up with theirs. But before that, you know, the British used the meridian going through London. The French would use the one going through Paris. The Spanish would use the one going through Madrid. Leads for a lot of confusion because everybody's referring different coordinates mean different things because if you're so far, if you're at such and such a longitude relative to the Greenwich meridian, well, it's going to be something different for Spain. It's going to be something different for Portugal. It's going to be something different for the Netherlands. You know, everybody else who was all the other ones that were out colonizing at the time would have had different coordinate systems. So like that, like we had to come to an agreement on the Earth, what we did is on the sky, we, predict, we picked the position of the sun on the first day of spring. Vernal equinox is the first day of spring. So fancy astronomical word for the first day of spring. So on the first day of the spring, the sun is actually on the celestial equator. And it's at that vernal equinox. So we use that as our measuring point. That's defined to be zero degrees or zero hours in right ascension. Astronomers like to do things backwards, sideways, all sorts of things. So instead of using degrees for right ascension, we use hours, minutes, and seconds. So degrees, minutes, and seconds of arc for declination. Hours, minutes, and seconds for right ascension. Meaning that you'll start with zero. And you go around to 12 hours on one side and come back around and hit 24 hours when you come back around again. So measured in terms of time, it's a convenience in astronomy because you can use it to determine you know, hours of rising and setting very easily without any other conversions. You already know, you already have a time frame in there that matches exactly with the Earth's rotation. So those are the two sets of coordinates that we use. And again, just like latitude and longitude gives us a way to determine the positions of anything precisely on the surface of the celestial sphere. Betelgeuse is at, again, some specific coordinates that aren't, I'm not, you don't need to know specifically, but if I give you those coordinates and you point a telescope there, you're going to be pointing right at that specific star. 
So it's one way that astronomers have to be able to relay things very easy as to where something is located in the sky. Orbital motions. We have a number of different cycles that we're going to look at today and on Friday. Um, first of all, there's a couple, there's two different days. Right? Two different days, two different measures of a day. There is a solar day. That's what we use. That's noon to noon. Noon to noon means from when the sun is highest in the sky to when the sun is highest in the sky. So from for right now, for where we are, that's about 1.15 in the afternoon. And the next day at 1.15, one solar day will have passed. That's what we use to measure time. That is our day. That's 24 hours. That's not how long it takes the Earth to spin on its axis once. The Earth actually spins a little bit faster than that. So the sun is back into the sun is back. Sun, the sun is in the same position one day later, one 24-hour period later. But the stars are not quite there. So when the Earth is rotated once, look at our image here. We start here down at the bottom. There's the sun and there's the Earth, and there's some point pointing directly at the sun on the Earth. One rotation of the Earth later, that point is still po- is pointing exactly the same direction, right? Nothing's changed here. It's pointing straight in this position. It's pointing straight here. Only thing that's changed is that the Earth has moved. Right? Earth has moved one day's worth of its orbit around the sun. So it's gone about 1 365th of the way around the sun. It's moved a little bit. So now this isn't pointing at the sun. The Earth actually has to rotate a little bit more to get that back pointing at the sun, to get to one solar day, which is what we use to measure. So the Earth takes 23 hours and 56 minutes to spin once on its axis. But that's not the day that we use. That's called a sidereal day. That's sidereal meaning relative to the stars. So at this point here, the positioning on the Earth relative to the stars is exactly the same as it was one day before. The solar day, the one we use, our regular day, is a little bit different. It actually takes a little bit longer, about four minutes, for the Earth to rotate a little bit more to get back into position. So 23 hours and 56 minutes is the sidereal day relative to the stars. That's how long it really takes the Earth to rotate once on its axis. Because it's moving at the same time, you know, the Earth just isn't sitting still here. Because it's moving, it's moved that little bit of the way around. It takes a little bit longer for the sun to get back into position. The sun to reach that highest point again in the sky it takes it about four minutes longer. So we have a sidereal day and we have a solar day. And bo- both are going to, we'll see how both, we'll see how both are used. Now in terms of the other motion that we're looking at, there's two motions of the Earth. There's one is it spinning on its axis. The other is it's moving around the sun. So as we move around the sun, we see different constellations. So it takes us one year, right? One year to make one complete lap around the sun, 365 and a quarter days or so. And depending on where we are, constellations, here's that great celestial sphere, a part of it out behind us. You recognize the names of all those constellations, right? These are the ones that you might not recognize the constellations, but you recognize the names, right? All the zodiacal constellations. And those are important because they're the ones that the sun appears to pass through over the course of the, over the, course of the year. So, but what, which ones we're going to see at any given time 
depends on where we are. So in September, for example, the sun is in Virgo, right? If the sun is in Virgo, you're not going to see Virgo because go look out there at the sun right now and Virgo's all around it. You're not going to see it, right? Not unless there's a total solar eclipse, then you will. But six months later, in March, okay, we've moved around. In March, now the sun is over in Pisces. Now we can't see Pisces. It's blotted out by the sun. But Virgo will be nice and prominent in the night sky. So we're going to see different constellations as the sun moves around. And you'll notice that if you go out and look, there's some constellations that you only see certain times of year. Orion is a big example of that, right? You go out in December and January, Orion's nice and bright there in the evening sky, you can see it. Uh, later on, you know, six months later, you don't see it at all. You sit there and look and look, and it's just not visible. It's too close to the sun to be able to be seen. So we're going to see different constellations at different times of year. Sometimes you'll see Taurus. Other times, when, it's the, the sun, when the Earth is over here and the Sun is in that same direction, you're not going to be able to see it. So you can measure the constellations that really are opposite. Now there are some constellations that you can see all the time. Right? Big Dipper. Okay, it's not a constellation, but I usually give it by that name because that's how people know it. Uh, Big Dipper is uh, an asterism, actually. It's a grouping of stars. It's part of a constellation. But that one we see all the time, right? You can see it right now. Six months later, you can see it again. It's because it's located very close to the pole of the celestial sphere. So it stays up all the time. It's always visible when you're this far north. We're able to see that all the time. So there are some constellations you can always see. Some constellations you only see certain parts of the year. And there's other constellations that you can never see at all. So I'm going to finish up there and then I will come back. I got a little bit more on the Earth's uh, yearly motion to do. And I'll do that on Friday and we'll get started. We'll finish up a lot of chapter zero then and get started on the, on the lab. Any questions? Questions? Have a good day. Have a good tomorrow. And I'll see everybody on Friday. Then you're stuck with me for two hours.